There's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. The show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can eyewitness videos create human rights change? That's the main question for our guest today on Future Hindsight, Jackie Zamudo. She's the program manager in the United States for Witness, an organization that helps human rights defenders use video to expose injustice. Her work includes police accountability, immigrant rights, and indigenous rights. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So your tagline is, see it, film it, change it. Witness is a global movement that uses video to create human rights change. Why did Witness choose video as a medium for this message? So Witness first got its start about 26 years ago, following a pretty infamous incident that was captured on video, and that is the beating of Rodney King, who was a young black man that was very violently beaten up by the L.A. police in 1992. And it just so happened that someone who lived in the area had recently purchased a large camcorder. He saw this event happening outside of his window, decided to pick up the camera and film what he was observing, and then took that video to the police. They were not interested in it. He went to the media, and the media played it and sparked widespread protests across the nation, across the world. It opened up a lot of conversations around racialized policing, systemic abuse here in the United States. Sadly, it's something we still see a lot of today, but it was in that moment that our founder, Peter Gabriel, recognized the power that video has to really catalyze movements and spark change. And so with that idea, he started sending video cameras to different human rights defenders around the world trying to get more of the everyday experiences they were having captured on video so they could be shared with the world. What is the change that you've been able to see since you have been disseminating videos or since the Rodney King beating, maybe specifically in that instance? Well, I think that it's important to start out with saying video is not a magic wand (laughs) and that human rights change takes a very long time. And so what we have been able to see is the power that video has to expose abuses, to move people to action, to serve as valuable evidence in the courtroom. And I think that what we're trying to do is help people understand how to use video that they are capturing more strategically and effectively. So some of the instances that we've seen video be really effective in is, for example, the shooting of Walter Scott, who was killed by police officers here in the United States just a couple of years ago. This was not a case that we're involved in at all, but we saw the impact that video had when a bystander documented the killing and then actually decided to wait to release this video until after the police report came out. And once the police report came out, it was very evident that this officer was lying and the young man who filmed the video decided he had to share 
what he had witnessed, even though initially he was afraid to do so, afraid of retaliation by the cops. But he went to the family, made sure it was okay with them to publish. They worked with a local activist and a journalist to get that footage out there. And the day that the video was published, that officer was fired and arrested and charged with murder. And he is currently serving time in prison. And so the video itself is, we can't say that that is everything, and that is exactly why this officer was held accountable, but I think that the way that it was able to raise awareness around the case and was able to expose and juxtapose some of the lies that the officers were telling had a huge impact. Right. One of the things you mentioned earlier is that the person who took the video of Walter Scott waited to release the video. And in fact, that's one piece of advice that you give to people who take video is to pause and think. Why is that? One, and most importantly, I think, is that it's actually just a very good strategy because you give yourself a little bit more time to reflect on the situation, to calm down and think strategically about what do you want to do with this video? Who do you need to protect, including the person that you filmed and including yourself? What we saw with the Walter Scott incident was that by waiting to release this video, it really was a more powerful juxtaposition against what the officers were saying. If he had released that before the police report came out, they would have had the opportunity to review the video and possibly change their statement. And we've seen this go the other way. For example, with Ramsey Orta, who filmed the video of Eric Garner being killed by the NYPD, he went um, to the New York Daily News and released the video with his permission, but published his name alongside the video. And it obviously sparked major headlines and a worldwide movement calling for justice around this case. But shortly after that, Ramsey Orta himself became the target of a lot of online and offline harassment. Currently, he is the only person involved with the case who's serving four years in prison. And that is technically unrelated to this case, but it is, in many activists and advocates' perspective, directly related to the case because he was targeted and, you know, his his family members lost their jobs, his children were harassed. He was constantly living in fear and faced a lot of horrible online threats and harassment, as well as some physical intimidation. And so part of the stopping and pausing and waiting is really about assessing the risks and thinking strategically about how to increase the likelihood that your video will have an impact. You actually also teach a course on how to take videos and how to disseminate them in the most effective way with the highest impact. Can you tell us a little bit about the course? Yeah, so we do a lot of trainings and it's not just one standard course. We really try to tailor the materials that we have to every situation that we're in. We're always trying to make sure that we're sharing information about how to stay safe, how to film specific details that make your video not just easier to verify, but also more usable in a court of law. What we try to share is really practical guidance on how to improve the quality of videos as well as how to share them more impactfully. One of the things that you said just now uh, is about being safe. So clearly the person who took the video of Eric Garner is now serving time in prison. And the other part of this that I find very interesting is that justice isn't necessarily served. What is the limitation of video? 
Yeah, that's a very good question and one that we're confronted with on a pretty daily basis. Um, It can be really frustrating and disheartening to see how infrequently video actually holds up in a court of law and leads towards justice in legal terms. But I think that it still has a really powerful ability to expose abuses, to put out narratives that are countering what we're hearing in the mainstream. We're kind of in this fortunate position at Witness that we have the ability to kind of test the boundaries. And it's not always just about capturing something on video. It's also about how is that presented? How do you make sure your video gets found? How does it have context that makes it relevant to the case that you're talking about? One of the projects that I worked on around police violence is with a group here in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And what we kept hearing was this frustration, like, it doesn't matter if we capture stuff on video because it's not going to make a difference. What we found was really missing in the videos was the ability to point towards the larger systemic patterns of abuse. And what we wanted to do was work with this group who had been filming the cops for over two decades and accumulated this massive swath of videos that were on hard drives and different tapes and discs in their closet (laughs) and try to create a database so that the videos could be better organized, better analyzed, and seen in a way that shows some of the more systemic patterns. This isn't the type of violence that is going to make headline news. This is the day-to-day harassment and surveillance that communities are facing that often leads up to a very violent act or a killing by the police. And we wanted to tell the story of the day-to-day abuse using video. Given that Witness has been doing this for 26 years, I definitely think that the conversation has changed. But what else is it going to take to change the narrative and for Americans to actually demand true change in terms of police abuse specifically? It's going to take a lot. (laughs) I think that we're still at the point where some important conversations have been initiated, but it's going to take a much broader understanding of this issue. And again, the systemic nature of these abuses until people really have a deep sense and commitment to making a difference. If we actually sincerely want to change it, then we need to be accountable ourselves and make changes in our own lives and work to build bridges with people who are affected by this more directly. We also really want to ensure that video is being used to document positive change in the world and helping us to kind of create and imagine a world that we do want to live in. And there are a lot of positive stories out there of people who are resilient and resourceful and creative in the way that they approach problem solving. People have the ability to tell their own story in a more empowering way and are able to bring parts of their life into the the homes and the worlds of other people. So for example, some of the videos that I've seen coming out of Puerto Rico, I've found frustrating but also inspiring in the sense that they're able to show people how their life has been very directly impacted by the hurricane and what they're doing to help their community and their families get over these challenges. And I think just having that regular influx of video has been useful in helping people connect and say, oh, they don't have running water. Like, 
how would my life be different if I didn't have running water? And drawing those connections to places like Detroit that also have water issues. I think that video can help us kind of break down some of these big complex challenges that we're experiencing at a global level and bring it down to a more human uh, perspective. Yeah, the human perspective. We have to always remember that. You have this really interesting project called Capturing Hate, which is on viewer engagement with eyewitness videos that show transphobic violence as entertainment. And this is basically the reverse of what you do. You take existing video and then you study it. What did you discover? What we discovered with this project was pretty horrific. We learned that a lot of videos that are showing acts of violence towards transgender people are used as entertainment, and people would watch them over and over again. The comments were oftentimes very encouraging of the violence that was being committed or just used as a space to spread more hate and more lies about the trans community. And we saw a number of incidents where these videos had been taken down from platforms only to be reposted by a different user or on a different platform. And what was also very disturbing was that we learned, you know, especially on places like YouTube and World Star Hip Hop, alongside these horrific videos were advertisements for diapers or Target. Anything that's coming through your feed at that point is also being advertised alongside those videos. One of the interesting takeaways we had was that that was a possible avenue of advocacy to pressure the companies that were paying for advertisements and saying, did you know that your content was up against these videos that are extremely violent and hateful and being used for entertainment? And so that's something that we've had conversations with groups doing that advocacy work on. It's not something that we've moved forward on to date, but I think it was one of the big results of the study. What is a misconception that you would like to correct? There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about this? Uh, something specifically that you are doing with Witness and maybe something that really works already. Um, I think it kind of goes back to your initial question of what can video actually do. We still have sometimes a sense that video can change everything. Even though my work is so focused on video, it's important to recognize the challenges that it can pose to us. And it's important to think about how video can be used in conjunction with other tactics. So if we are trying to fight for social justice, Video alone is not going to do that, but it can be used as a way to complement other tools and activities and initiatives and strengthen the voices that we need to be hearing, strengthen calls to action, strengthen our own sense of a very complicated issue. And so I think that I do want to say I would change the idea that video can change everything in one foul swoop but would like to stand firm behind the fact that it does have the potential to help us affect change. So what is maybe one of your biggest victories that you have seen at Witness, human rights abuses that are shown through videos? I think a very recent one is just a couple months ago, there was a hearing in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and some of my colleagues worked very hard to train a group of lawyers on how to use video to document abuses 
and not just abuses in real time, but also show mass graves and kind of the effects that abuses can have or the aftermath of these abuses. And that footage was entered into court. And then several months later, two very high-level commanders were found guilty of crimes against humanity and both sentenced to life in prison. So that's a pretty concrete example of how video is used as part of a broader legal strategy and was able to help visualize something that many people knew of. They'd said that this mass grave existed, and without having, though, that very tangible evidence of it, it's likely that it could have been ignored or just not factored into the case in the way that it was. Right. That's big. That's really big. How did you come to this work? I've always been a very visual person, love images, film, video, and I think throughout my time doing my own film work, I really recognized the power that images can have in affecting change and helping people connect and humanizing people who are sometimes pushed out of the spotlight or the light in general. And so, you know, I feel really grateful to be doing this work where I am helping people every day understand that they have the tools they need in their own hands to be documenting the abuses they see in their neighborhoods, speaking out against them, and how to do that in a way that is keeping them safe (laughs) as well as their community. I think that's a big thing. But I would also say, you know, I've seen video be used in ineffective ways, and so I think I feel really grateful to be in this position to help people be thinking more safely and strategically about what they want to do with the content that they're creating. Oh, right. So what is an ineffective way? What's a lost opportunity? Well, a lot of that comes down to how video is stored (laughs) and preserved. And we have seen some unfortunate incidents where entire hard drives have been lost of footage that really could have been valuable. In some cases, for example, a lot of the groups who were documenting alleged war crimes in Syria by necessity were uploading that content to YouTube and relying on that as an archive. Just a couple of months ago, YouTube changed an algorithm and hundreds and thousands of these valuable videos were taken down. And they weren't even always graphic videos. Sometimes it was videos of protests or people speaking out, but because a certain word had been used in the description, it was deemed as terrorist content and taken down. And part of what Witness is doing is communicating with these technology companies and trying to help ensure that they are creating protocols and policies that do support the work that human rights defenders are doing and who are using these spaces like YouTube to post content that is important for researchers and investigators and legal professionals who are seeking to hold people accountable. How can social media be used in a way that is most effective for witness? What we like to tell people, especially with advocacy video, is that Oftentimes, it's not about how many eyes see your video. It's about which eyes see your video. Who is your audience? Who needs to see this video in order to be compelled to affect change? And how can you reach them? And if it's on social media and you have a direct line or you can send someone a direct message with that video, then that's great. If you don't, then you might want to try other avenues for getting that content to them. Some people's objective is really to get a lot of eyes and to, you know, to make a bigger story. Social media obviously can help with that, too, by helping it spread into networks where it might not otherwise be touching. More than anything, 
what social media has been able to do is really amplify voices who are saying, this is not what I saw. This is not what I lived through. This is not how the police treat me on a day-to-day basis and tell their own experience through their own eyes and in many cases show that with footage that proves what they're saying and makes it a little bit easier for people to connect to. Yeah, that's a good point. That personal touch, the personal experience that comes from sharing on social media and since we're so accustomed to doing that, we know that these are personal narratives as opposed to something that's manufactured by maybe a large corporation or somebody that we don't know. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? There is a lot that gives me hope. Having the opportunity to spend time in communities that are facing major challenges and seeing them still come together and, you know, have chit-chat over food or coffee and bond and be able to think beyond the challenges they're facing every day and visualize a world that they want to live in and be creative about how they imagine that, whether it's through collaborating with artists or musicians and saying, we can take back control. We don't have to rely on the state. We don't have to rely on corporations to make this world a place we want to live in. We have the tools that we need and we can make this happen ourselves. Fantastic. Thank you very much. (laughs) Sure. Thank you. As I was re-listening to this conversation with Jackie, I was reminded of how humans behave by default when confronted with violence or injustice, whether in person or on video. We watch. Maybe that is why video is not an effective tool for justice on its own. Video alone does not spur us into action. What happens next, of course, is that these patterns then become reinforced and systematic. The abuse of power becomes the norm, and people can freely get away with it. Still, now having seen repeated videos of police abuse has convinced me that the problem is pervasive and not just perpetrated by individual bad apples. I encourage you to go to our website for an extra audio clip for best practices in video documentation in case you have the opportunity to take a video yourself. But at the very least, examine and confront your own biases. And when you see a hate video side by side with product brand advertising, please reach out to that brand and demand that they do not advertise in places that sell hate. How can protests help us protect our communities? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Dave Archambault II. He's the former tribal chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in North Dakota and was instrumental in the Dakota Access Pipeline protests in 2016. He is currently a senior fellow at the University of Colorado First Peoples Worldwide Project, which is run under the American Indian Law Program and Leeds Business School. We want a peaceful and prayerful stance. We welcome and we thank everybody for support and we welcome them to come and we're going to try to accommodate best we can, but we ask four things. No alcohol, no drugs, no weapons, no violence, and come in prayer. And when that was happening, it was one of the most surreal, powerful things that anybody could imagine. Like, and words can't explain, but I think everybody who was partaking at that moment knew that there was something special happening. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. 
The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.